You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. To me, it sounds like a very Eastern European uh, Jewish tune. So the next tune we learn will be a South American one. We're going to turn in God's Word to Isaiah chapter 65. We're coming towards the end of Isaiah. Uh, If you're a visitor here, first time here, um, let me try and explain a little what we're trying to do is when we say when we're coming to worship God and we're coming to hear God's Word. Um, But before we do that, just one thing. Um, Duncan, is is the speaker on through in there, yeah? There is a wee switch. If you go through there, there's a wee switch that you can turn volume as well. I should have said that earlier. In Isaiah, we're, we're looking at God's Word, and we believe this is God speaking to us. And I was thinking about that this morning when I heard somebody introduce a service on the radio or pray at a service, let us dedicate ourselves to the possibility of God. Well, if you ever hear me say that, just get up and walk out. Because one absolute waste of time, you being here. I want you to dedicate yourself to the possibility of something. No. What I'm going to teach you here is, yes, you may be here thinking, I wonder, I'm questioning, I'm not sure. That's fine. That, that's, in a sense, that's normal. But I'm going to teach you, and God teaches us from His Word, who He is. Not the possibilities. In uh, Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 13, it talks about God's servants singing out of the joy over their hearts. It talks about the past troubles having been forgotten. And the verses we look at today go on to explain what that means, talking about a new heavens and a new earth. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. The new is portrayed in terms of the old. It's a promise of renewal. Everything God created new at the beginning will be renewed. Um, I don't watch these programs. I'm told that they're very popular. Um, To me, I have no understanding at all why anyone would watch them, but maybe you do, and you can tell me afterwards why they're absolutely riveting. But there are apparently programs called makeover programs, and you can get yourself made over. Well, I'm not interested, as you can tell. Uh, I may need it. Uh, Or you can get your house made over, You can get your dog made over, get your life made over, I don't know. Um, But in a way, it's kind of a biblical concept that this is like the ultimate makeover, the renewal. And I think you know what I mean if I put it this way. Some of you, you came in here this morning and you're bounding with vitality. You're just full of joy and, you know, you can hardly keep yourself still. But others more or less dragged yourselves in here, and you're tired, and you're weary, and you're worn, and you're struggling with different things, maybe physical, maybe mental, maybe emotional, work, whatever. And you have that feeling where you're kind of just washed out. And the idea of renewal is just such a wonderful thing. Uh, I mean, if you have a, a Bible, turn back to Isaiah 48. There's a marvelous... Uh, a long time ago now, it seems, we looked at this. There's a marvelous promise at the end of Isaiah chapter 48. 
And at verse, uh, sorry, Isaiah 49 is. So I see he's even got that one wrong. Um, it's Isaiah 40. Beg your pardon. Verse 20. Uh, I'm tired and weary and worn. I need renewed. My mind needs renewed. Isaiah 40 and verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. They will run and not grow weary. But many of us who are Christians, honestly, if you asked how we were, apart from the answer fine, which is the most popular answer, the number two answer is tired, tired, tired. This idea of running and not being weary seems such a dream. But this is what is promised. It's uh, instead of dedicating ourselves to the possibility of God, it's continuing on in the strength of the Lord, knowing that God is going to renew everything. Revelation 21 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. In the passage that we're looking at, there's a now and also a not yet. Some people get really confused about this because if you take it too literally, uh, you'll see as we go on that it creates all kinds of problems. But it's, it's meant to be teaching us about the new kingdom that God is bringing, some of which we experience now, but all of which we are looking forward to. We get a taster now, but the best is yet to be. It's like when you go to one of these really posh restaurants and you do the taster menu. See, I never understood all this stuff. I thought the taster menu was like, for, for, you know, you get to try what it's like and decide if you want it. But it's actually the really expensive, posh bit of it. Um, but for me, when we hear about what God is like and when we experience God in this life on this earth, it is absolutely fantastic. But it is just a taste of what is yet to come. So we're going to go through this, and I, I hope that I can convey something to you of just for me in the midst of quite a heavy week, what a, what a joy it is to know that these things are true and just to study them, and just so thankful to the Lord for them. First of all, verse 17, and I'm not going to do this, we could, we could do a sermon on each of these verses, but we're not, we're going to cram it all into one. Verse 17 the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Our sorrows and our experiences dim our appreciation of life. You know that. There's a lady on the hill town. I don't know if she's still alive, but she was in Auschwitz. Will she ever, ever forget that? No, she'll never forget it. There are people you meet and you see in their eyes that there's a sorrow there and you wonder where it's from. And it's for a child who died or an experience that they had in some other way, at some other time, 
which at one and the same time seems in the distant past, but also is part of what they are just now. But here God is promising us something. It's, it's not God forgetting our sins. That's promised elsewhere in Scriptures. But it's us forgetting our sorrows. Now, let me explain it in this way. Paul talks about his light and momentary troubles. Now, what he was talking about was beaten up to the point of death three times, being shipwrecked, being abused, being attacked, being neglected, the pain and, of trouble and division in the churches, so many different things. And he describes some of them, and he says they're light and momentary troubles. When we are going through them, they don't feel like that. In the context of where we are and how we feel at that particular time, they don't feel like that. And we may remember them for all of our days. Um, you can tell by my voice, I've had man flu. This is a very serious condition and should not be laughed at at all. And ladies, if you want to understand, it's just, this is really serious. You have to understand. It, it does exist. Look it up on the internet. Um, but if you read my diary, being a typical man, I think about it all the time. So I write my diary, still coughing, still sick, and so on. But when it goes away, within a day, I won't be writing, I'm not coughing, I'm not sick, because you forget about it. You've had back pain, and it's really terrible, and then it goes away, and you don't think about having back pain. You forget. And I think there's a wonderful thing here that it's almost impossible to grasp for anybody. If you've had a sorrow in your life that is so deep and so profound that every time you walk into the room, you, you, you almost want to burst into tears because you're reminded of someone who's gone, or some experience that scarred your life, that no matter how much counseling and help you get, it's still there. If you've had that, it's really hard to believe that this is even possible, but this is what is promised, that we will forget all our miseries. Calvin says, for he means that the joy at being restored shall be so great that they shall no longer remember their miseries. The new creation is enjoyed by new and fresh minds. All our sorrows are gone. He wipes away every tear. It is the most incredible promise for the believer that in the midst of intense suffering, we know that there will come a time when this suffering will be forgotten, gone, as though it had never existed. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Now, this is the joy that comes from God. I will create, he says. We have lots of reasons for joy. Um, you can have a good meal, makes you happy. Um, you could have been at Murrayfield yesterday, and that very rare occasion, Scotland winning a rugby match, makes you very happy. And if you're from Northern Ireland or Southern Ireland, I don't care, suck it up, that's what it feels like. Uh, you shouldn't be beating us. But anyway, uh, it makes you very joyful. I mean, uh, well, makes some of us very joyful. Uh, for those of you from Ireland, you're now going, oh, it's just a game, it's just a game. And I noticed there are no green shirts on this year when there usually are. Uh, but that makes you happy. There are so many things. 
that can make us happy. Money, health, family, and so on. But here's the thing. All of these things can be taken away, and all of their joy is to some degree superficial. There is a deeper joy that can never be taken away and that comes from knowing Christ. In Revelation 7, which I think is referring to this as well, it says, these are they who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's nice to have a laugh, it's nice to be joyful, and it's nice to be happy. But to have a joy that can never be taken away, and a joy that overwhelms all sorrow, is just such a wonderful, wonderful promise. And that is the promise that God gives to His people. And it's seen also in an extraordinary way, because you'll notice at verse 19, it speaks about God's joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem. In Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. <coughs> Excuse me. He will take great delight in you. In His love, He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And this is the joy of God saying, these are my people. These are no longer those who rebel and hate me. These are my people. It's as though the Almighty God looks at us and sees us as His crown, as His jewels. There's such a great joy in not just ourselves having joy, but being the joy of God. And again, if you stop and you think about it, it's, it's such a difficult and almost unbelievable thing. Let, allow me uh, to quote uh, Mr. Calvin again. I just love this. I just, uh, for me, I, this just made me smile so much. Uh, forget, it's the old English, but probably originally, well, it was originally in French. Hence, we obtain no small confirmation of our faith when we learn that God is moved and so powerfully moved by such an affection towards us. If we are in painful and distressed circumstance, he says that he is affected by grief and sorrow. And on the other hand, if our condition is pleasant and comfortable, he says that he takes great pleasure in our prosperity. It's hard for us to conceive of an almighty God who feels our sorrows and feels our joys. But that's what the Bible teaches us. It's no small confirmation of our faith when we learn that God is moved. I think of just the incredible sorrow that some friends I have this week feel writing and saying, we, we, can't, we can't grasp this. This is surreal. And how do you comfort them? Because you're in the same position. You can't grasp it. But to know that God 
I don't want this. I mean, this is used in a way often that I think is wrong and heretical. But in a biblical sense, I think it is just a wonderful thing that God weeps with those who weep and he rejoices with those who rejoice. I think that is just a wonderful thing. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Joy is such, real joy, it's just such a a central part of Christianity and our hope and our faith, that even when we are in the midst of the darkest sorrow, we can look forward to a much, much deeper joy. And then there's more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. <coughs> Here he's speaking about life. Provided for at all ages. There will be no more cot death or infant death. There'll be no more premature death for the elderly. Now again, this is what we mean about taking it literally. This is not saying in heaven there's death. But it's saying there's a basic principle that what death does is it always cuts off life. It's not meant to suggest that death will still be there, but that the curse of death is gone and the fulfillment of all is achieved. Death has no more power because sin has no more place. And it's the rolling back of the consequences of sin so that there is no more death. And what's being promised is life and life eternal. Now, I want you to reflect on it in this way. As you get older, imagine this. Some of you will be old. I'm not saying where that line is. But as you get older, this will happen. Imagine an old Christian suffering from ill health, basically being confined to their home. And you go to visit them. And I've done this many times. And in the midst of that illness, and in the midst of that incapacity, and in the midst of knowing that the end is drawing near, there is a peace and a joy and a vitality that makes you leave that place going, oh, wow. You went to minister to them, and they humbled you by their gracious, gracious attitude, by their joy and their life in the midst of illness and death coming up. It's the most, most incredible thing if, when that happens. But I've also been to other homes where you visit somebody who's in the same circumstances. They're older, they're coming towards the end of their days, they've lived for wealth or family or work or fame, and all those outward things are there in their home, all the things they've accumulated over the years, and all of them are useless to them because they are about to leave them all, and there's nothing that they can do about it. And instead of that hope, and instead of that vitality, and instead of that peace, and instead of that joy, it's just sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. Because everything they have is in their possessions, or the now, and the now is going. And they have no hope for the future. Before, their hope for the future was that they would 
grow and grow older, that they would go to university, that they would get a job, that they would get married, that they would have children, that they would see their grandchildren, that they would get money, that they would be able to do 101 bucket things on their bucket list before they died. But all that's in the past, and all that's gone, and they're at the end of their days, and they're sitting in the midst of all their possessions, and there's nothing. There's just nothing. It is so… I don't know of a greater bleakness than that. And God says, but I come to bring you life. And we need to know that. Security. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. The city was organized for security and stability. That was the intention of the original cities, and yet cities can so easily, very quickly become dangerous. We keep failing. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, to build and not to live in it was the fate of the disobedient. Deuteronomy 28.30, you will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. But here something else is promised, longevity and durability. You will live long in the land. Like the days of a tree, you won't be worn out. Earlier in Isaiah 26, we have a strong city. God makes salvation, its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. You will have stability and security. Verse 23, you will enjoy what you work for. You won't labor in vain. And those of you who know your Bibles, you know that's a turning back of the curse, that the curse was that Adam and Eve would labor and they would just struggle and struggle and struggle. And here he's saying, no, you're not going to labor in vain. Some of you will go to work tomorrow and you're dreading it because on Friday when you finish, you say, well, what did I do? And how's that done anything? And it, sometimes it seems that we're just going round and round and round in circles, never really achieving anything. And here God promises His people, no, no, your labor is not in vain. Our labor in the Lord, Paul says, is not in vain. And you won't have children doomed for tragedy. Surely every parent dreads, or potential parent, dreads the idea of bringing children into a troubled world full of war. Imagine giving birth in Aleppo, or in northern Nigeria just now, which our news is not covering, but systematically, Christian villages are being wiped out and destroyed, and children are being killed. And you, you don't want to have children in those circumstances. But here, the opposite is given. Parents will see their children as one with them in the blessing of God. This security and this stability, this new gated community. And we don't mean the kind of gated community that very wealthy people can create on the suburbs of our cities and, you know, have security guards and keep the plebs out. We mean the kind of community where there is security, where God invites people in, but He keeps His people secure. There is the ultimate security in belonging to God's family. 
And it goes on, verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. That is a oneness with the Lord, where He anticipates our need, where we are not in want, where He listens to us. Have you ever had that kind of satisfaction that you go home to a loved one and they said, oh, would you mind getting me this? And you go, aha, got it already. You just feel, got it. And, and there's a kind of little bit of that in terms of we go to God and we say, Lord, what about this and what about this? Before they call, I will answer. That oneness with the Lord means that we speak His words and His thoughts, for through Him, says Paul in Ephesians 2.18, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. It's that tremendous fellowship with God. Now, that will be at its absolute in heaven, where the Lamb at the center of the throne will be our shepherd, where He will feed us, where He will wipe every tear from our eyes. But we get the taster of that in this world as well. We get that fellowship with God. And one more thing. Well, can you move it on for me, Louise, please? The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's recalling Isaiah 11. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young hand will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I was looking for it this morning. I couldn't find it. Um, about uh, almost 20 years ago, I preached on Isaiah 11, and my son was in the congregation, and he was very young, eight years old, and we're saying, right, you know, okay, sometimes dad can be a bit long. So, um, no, but it's really good for you to be in church. Draw, if you'd like to draw. And he drew pictures of the sermons. And I've got this somewhere. I couldn't find it. I'm really sorry I couldn't find it because I'd like to have scanned it and shown it to you, but I will find it. Um, and it was just, he had this, uh, he drew uh, a kind of uh, a wolf with a napkin around it and a lamb at the table, and a lion, and a bear, and it was just, I just thought it was great. I mean, I didn't know he was so talented, and, and I just thought it was lovely that he got that from the sermon, because that actually is, is what's being said. It's being saying that there's a disharmony within nature, and this, this harmony and this oneness, as the creation is renewed, that is going to be the ultimate fruit of the renewal that comes through Christ. This is the creation being restored. The old enmity is gone. The fear is removed and nature is changed. And one thing that's very interesting in this, although it's referring back to Isaiah 11, there's something a little different, and dust will be the serpent's food. And what that is saying is going back to Genesis 3:14. the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And what is being said there is, that the wicked will no longer flourish or the strong prey on the weak. That there will, there will be absolute justice and harmony. So I think that, that that whole picture that we've got is just such a wonderful promise. Now, 
I think you can apply it to this life. I think as you come and trust in Jesus Christ, <coughs> you'll experience a foretaste, much of this. But the ultimate, always the best, is yet to be. The new heavens and the new earth. Now, that's why Paul could say that he was really, really glad that he hung around on earth to be for the, the good of the church and the people he was trying to serve, but he longed to be with Christ, which was far better. Now, I want to summarize this in just a, a couple of ways or apply it in a couple of ways. Firstly, you need to understand this is not universalism. This is not the Bible saying, God says, look, everything's going to be all right. Everyone's all going to be saved in the end. Everything will turn out fine in the end. The whole book of Isaiah draws a contrast between those who accept God's provision and those who reject it, those who seek Him and those who don't, those who say, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. And that's why it's set up in such a contrast. That's why those two pictures that I gave you of the two elderly people, both very similar circumstances, both very different destinies and very different understandings and attitudes towards God. Because you see, there's a greater reality than just the material you see around you. If you're sitting there with all your possessions around you, your big screen TV, everything. There's no real beauty and no real reality in that. The world and its desires are passing away. And, and you, you look and you say, well, is that it? Is that it? And, and every inch within your body says, no, that can't be it. There must be more. And there is more. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. But so that we cannot fathom what he has done from beginning to end. We have this sense of beauty, but we don't know how to fulfill that. And that's where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in. That's where this phrase about, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. The holy mountain is the place where the Lord dwells. The holy mountain is being in the presence of God. The devil can't touch you in the presence of God. And that's, this is where we worship. It's what I love about coming together in St. Peter's Sunday morning and Sunday evening. I really do, I really mean this. During the week, you just get battered black and blue in so many different ways. And there's so many things that, that yeah, they bring you joy, but also bring you sorrow. And, and there's so much hassle and trouble and darkness within the world. And I feel that when we come together in worship, now I know that you can do this in your own home, and I know that we can pray individually, but to be honest, I'm not strong enough for that on my own. I need to be with God's people, and most of all, as we are worshiping, there are times where you really feel this is the gate of heaven. And somehow, all those burdens, all those sorrows, all those pains, they're like nothing. Not because you're having some kind of ecstatic experience or on some kind of religious drug, but because your perspective changes and 
and the gate of heaven is opened, and you realize these are but light and momentary troubles. And even the worst of them all, death itself, is just a doorway. It's an enemy that has been defeated. See, I hear that. I see it. By the mercy of God, sometimes I feel it. And I know that others of you do as well. And there is nothing ever in the world like it. In fact, everything that this world offers or worships is just a shadow of that reality, the goodness and the beauty of God and the eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Let me just give you one example of how that works in this life. I, I don't know how it works in the next, because I've not been there. Um, but I, this is, let me just give you one foretaste. I met a man from Kampuchea, Cambodia, and I'd not had a great week, so I was full of moans and complaints until I heard this man and spoke with him. He was a man who lost all his family in the Pol Pot genocide, except, as he later discovered, his sister who managed to get to Australia. But he lived off half a can of rice a day for three years. He was tortured. He experienced incredible suffering. He came to the West, and in England, he became a Christian. He came to know Jesus. I don't think I've ever met a man with such joy. Why? The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Oh, yes, he still, at times, would reflect upon what had happened to him. His sister, by the way, became a Christian as well. But that is what God offers. If you're here and your life seems to have been one series of disasters and pains and sorrows and frustrations and letdowns and hurts after another, how can it be rebuilt? How can it be renewed? It can't, except that you receive a new life that comes in Jesus Christ. Ask me at the end if you want to know more about that. And if you are a Christian, please learn. Yes, your troubles are real and you take them to God and you can't ignore them. But please learn to set them in a bigger picture and in a bigger context where whatever happens, the beauty of the Lord your God will be upon you. He will sanctify your sorrows. He will glorify himself even in your sufferings. And all of the promises contained even in this short passage of Scripture, they are for you. They are yours. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reasons for that joy. We come, some of us, with memories so deeply ingrained within us that we don't think about them until they resurface at times of crisis. 
We come with a deep consciousness of our own sin, and we come out of God with a, sometimes a weariness of soul and a darkness and fears and doubts. But we come to you, the one who is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the one who makes all these marvelous promises. Lord, we bless you that you give joy and you give life and you give hope. We ask that we ourselves would be on your holy mountain and thank you that this is the gate of heaven. Amen. We're going to sing um, a song and then we're going to uh, got a little bit extra at the end of the service because we've got an ordination of two deacons. Um, we're going to sing the song, Rejoice, the Lord is King. <coughs> your Lord and King adore, rejoice, give thanks and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. We'll stand to sing. seated. <laughs> you can do a repeat if you wish. Now, can I ask uh, Connor and Duncan, please, to come up to the front?
I'll ask the elders to join you in a moment, but I want to say something to you first. Um, delighted to have you fine young men here and that the congregation have elected you as deacons. I wanted just to share with you uh, a couple of verses. A deacon must be faithful to his wife. You're getting one. <laughs> Sorry, he is, by the way. That's, that wasn't a prophecy. There's a <laughs> Connor's, you're getting married in August, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. It may not have been your motive for being a deacon, but it's a biblical motive that as you serve as a deacon in the church, God gives you assurance. Working for God in that way is just, it's just it's a, it's a tremendous reaffirmation of your faith. And we're very grateful to the Lord for bringing you both to us in different ways from different places and delighted that we're able to ordain you as deacons. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions, and uh, I'll explain one of them as we go. Do you believe the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and the only rule of faith and manners? Do you sincerely own and declare the confession of faith approved by former general assemblies of this church to be the confession of your faith, and do you own the doctrine therein contained to be the true doctrine which you will constantly adhere to? Do you own and acknowledge the Presbyterian Church government of this church, my Kirk Sessions, Presbyteries, Provincial Synods, and General Assemblies to be the only government of this church, and do you engage to submit thereto, concur therewith, and not to endeavor directly or indirectly the prejudice or subversion thereof? Okay, this is the long one, um, and it's basically doing with the history of the church, and it's asking whether in slightly longer than this, but it's, I'm explaining to the congregation as well. It's asking whether you accept that the government doesn't have the right to tell the church, to govern the church, um, and that we believe in the spiritual independence and freedom of the church. But this is the longer version of that. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, as King and Head of the church, has therein appointed a government in the hands of church officers, distinct from and not subordinate in its own province to civil government, and that the civil magistrate does not possess jurisdiction or authoritative control over the regulation of the affairs of Christ's church? And do you approve of the general principles embodied in the claim, declaration, and protest adopted by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1842 and in the protest of ministers and elders, commissioners from presbyteries to the General Assembly read in presence of the Royal Commissioner on 18th May 1843 as declaring the views which are sanctioned by the Word of God and the standards of this church with respect to the spirituality and freedom of the church of Christ and her subjection to him as her only head and to his word as her only standard. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I will repeat it. No. Um, <laughs> do you promise to observe uniformity of worship and of the administration of all public ordinances within this church as the same are at present performed and allowed? Do you accept the office of a deacon of this congregation and promise through grace, faithfully, diligently, and cheerfully to discharge all the duties thereof? Yes. Yes. Can I ask the elders to come up, please? Um, I'm going to ask both of you actually to kneel so that they can lay hands on you. Um, move forward a bit so they can come behind you as well. There we go. And I ask the elders to come, please, and uh, lay hands on these young men. We do that again for those of you who are observing that this is a, a, a sign of uh, God's commissioning. 
Can I ask the congregation to stand and we'll pray, please. Lord, our God, we bow before you and we thank you for your goodness to us as a church in in sending us leaders and in sending us deacons and especially uh, Duncan and Connor. We thank you, Lord, for them, for their willingness to serve you, for the congregations choosing them, and above all, you choosing them. We pray that you would bless them, bless all whom they love, that they would be enabled to serve your church, not just here on Sundays, but wherever your people are gathered and wherever they have opportunity. Help us to support them and to encourage them. We ask your blessing to be upon them and therefore upon us. In your name, amen. Please stand and you can sign. There's a formula behind you you have to sign um, and we welcome you. I ask the elders to stay up for a moment as well. Uh, While they're signing this, can I ask John Ferguson to come here? Um, In case people don't know, uh, you lot can be seated, by the way, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) In case you don't know, um, one of the things we also wanted to do was to acknowledge and to welcome John, who has been appointed as a pastoral assistant in the congregation. John, it is an absolute joy to have you. God sent you to us, you and, and Moira, and we are thrilled that God has made this provision, and we look forward to you serving us, but also we want to serve you and help you in any way, and may the Lord bless you in what you. Thank you. And can I ask the elders, uh, welcome the deacons, and also welcome John, please, and then go and sit down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you go, guys. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.